Today's podcast sponsor is Hubert Engineered Woods. And I want to talk to you about zip sheathing and why we use zip sheathing. I know you've heard me talk about it on the podcast before, but I thought let's just lay it out in the simplest of forms. Number one, when I install it properly, I tape the seams, I liquid flash the seams, I manage for water with my windows, I do, I, I use their products, I don't have to worry about water. There are times when we install drywall inside of a house and we don't have cladding on the outside because they know zip system is going to be waterproof. So that's number one. Number two, I can manage for air. So using zip system sheathing on the walls, my like last five houses we built were all below passive house uh, levels of air leakage. They were all below that 0.6 ACH 50. And we're not putting that much effort into air sealing. We're just making sure that we tape well, which we manage for water, we manage for air. And the last five houses that I built all had zip R because that continuous insulation that comes adhered to the back of my zip sheathing that I'm already putting up and installing, now I have continuous R value that I get the whole R6 or the R9 or R12, whatever it is, I don't see building any other way. It works for us. It can work for you. Make sure you go to huberwood.com and check them out. And Huber, thanks for sponsoring the podcast. Pete Yost here for the Unbuild It podcast. I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with my good buddies. Pete, oh, I'm Steve Basic. <laughs> that was a quick one. Let's get those mistakes out of the way. Get them out of the way. And I'm Jake Bruton. How do you know it was a mistake? It, it mm. was uh, a great way to start off my hosting, the Unbuilt Podcast. So the topic this time around is how to build a house without a floor. And I'm as curious as all of you are as to how you actually accomplish this. So I didn't choose this topic. How do you build a house without a floor? It's all about levitation. It's all about levitation. It's, it's all about your levitation skills. This involves seances and things like that? It can. In the spirit of Halloween coming, we can get crazy here. Somebody doesn't know when this is publishing, so the Halloween coming mark is it's coming next year. Well, it could. <laughs> Halloween is always coming. It is. Even Unless right, it's November today. November 1st, Halloween is still coming. So, thank you, YouTube listeners. Thank you for being on my side. This guy's always trying to beat me up. <laughs> So let's talk uh, the reason that we would want to build a house without a floor, as we said. Like, it's, we're not building a house without a floor. Let's start there. We're talking oh, about. Oh, that's the trick. We're, okay. we're, we're talking about with you. Uh, removing the concrete slab from a slab on grade home. That's what we're actually talking about. Or from a basement with a slab, concrete slab. So we're talking about getting rid of some of the concrete in the, in the built environment. And there's multiple reasons that we could do that, right? Number one, an easy argument is concrete's fairly bad for the environment from a global warming potential number. There's a lot that goes into it. The Portland process is even worse than the quarrying and delivery process. Uh, number two, uh, concrete floors are cold. Even if they're insulated and totally in the environment, the emissivity of the material, just like your stone countertops are cold, uh, it's not as comfortable as warm carpet or or cork or something like that. And from a comfort perspective, again, we can then say, well, they're hard too. 
If you're going to stand at the kitchen sink and do dishes, it might be uncomfortable. It might, you know, if you're standing at the stove, whatever it is, or if you're like myself and you just stand in front of the refrigerator with the door open long enough that your legs get tired trying to figure out what you want to eat, it could be uncomfortable. What other reasons might we not want to put a concrete slab in? It's hard to repair things underneath of it, right? We'd have to cut out concrete to get to a, a plumbing error. It might be easier a different way to get to it. I mean, obviously, we're not building the whole house with the idea that we're going to repair or replace or remodel, but it's something to consider. Yeah, I'm always amused at that by comments on, on online when you post something about either concrete or like radiant floor systems and people say, well, how do you repair a leak? Maybe the idea is that we're building without leakage. Well, and if we're going to do that, then how do you repair a leak for your water line that runs underneath there? That yeah, supplies or your shower. sewer like, in the street or yeah, whatever it sucks. the case is. Sometimes it's, it sucks. Yeah, you have to fix it. Um, But, yeah, and I mean, it, it always, you know, things like this, it kind of starts with what was that end game? Like, is there, it, as we look at these details, is there a way we can take that concrete out of it? Right? And that's Kind kind of where that started, but not exactly. Um, you know, the my first wait. So if we're you're about to go to history behind this, I'm, right? I'm going, I'm, gonna, I'm opening the history book. I'm going to go two two thousand years before when you were about to start. Okay, buildings well, buildings in wow. ancient Rome He's piqued his interest all uh, of a sudden. While the Romans, <laughs> we're not under- talking about your birthday either, but we're just. Why is it that when you say something like that, I smile and laugh, and when we say something like that to you, why is everybody always picking on Mine is a funny intellectual (coughs) joke. You guys, it is an insult. So that's the difference. I'm not sure if I agree with that, but okay. Well, see, there you go. So, Of course you're not going (laughs) to. 2,000 years roughly before your history that you're about to start with. So you're basically talking about like the, the... Ancient Rome. The sunrise of AD. Sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just uh, making sure we're on the same and, time, and timeline. 50 years before that, too. 50 years before. 500 okay. years before that. While the Romans had figured out concrete, they were the first ones to figure out concrete. Uh, in fact, we lost the ability to understand concrete for like 1,500 years there after the Roman Empire fell, by the way. Uh, the it's things like, were yawning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody knew how to repair it. Nobody knew how well, to replace it. The one guy with the building science knowledge died. And he forgot to write it down for everybody else. So, <laughs> hence, we should, the podcast, making this information in perpetuity. So, a thousand I, years from now, I somebody's going to be watching I had our, no idea why some we people were doing gonna, this podcast. Exactly. It's a thousand years from now, people are going to sit there and say, I remember that Peter Yost, he wore that orange shirt right around Halloween. and SK Collaborative, our good friend Carl Seville from... Okay, I like Carl. I like Carl, so I'll I'll promote his shirt. Good job, Carl. Thank you. So the first uh, buildings that used concrete didn't use it as a floor. They used it as a foundation. They used it as a building material. Uh, You know, the Parthenon is concrete. The floor is not a concrete floor. The substructure is compacted aggregate, sand, and tile. Hmm. Or stone. And actually, now that I say that, the Parthenon's stone instead of tile. But Yeah, I was just going to say, I was in a 2,000-year-old Roman structure about two months ago. 
And it was it was all stone and brick, and the walls had mortar, but the floor didn't. It and so we can make an argument blocks. that done correctly, potentially we're talking about a multiple thousand of year assembly that we're. I might be stretching it a little there, but yeah, you get I think, the idea. I think it starts, you know, for me is what what are we doing and why are we doing it, right? And if if the answer to the second question is because that's how we always do it, right? Then I think we need to rethink it. That's a, that's to me that's a cop out, right? Now it's okay if you say, well, that's how I always do it, and I find that to be the most economical way to solve that problem. I've already thought critically. I've, about I've already critically thought way. about it at some point, but to just be a, become a builder or an architect or something and just do what we've done for so long doesn't help our industry. Doesn't help you. Um, Anyways. So are you thinking of the f- floor assembly as simply a material choice? Is that pretty much what you're saying? I think of everything as a choice. Yes. So there's a material, material choice there. There's a process choice. Cost. There's a procedure of how this gets installed and what goes on top of it, what other things are attached to it in the assembly. Because honestly, that's where a lot of this started is it wasn't, like, should we do a concrete slab or not? It was driven by what was happening long after the slab would have been installed, which drove the some of these questions, I guess, is my point. But we're talking about slab-on-grade homes, just because that's the term we use for them. Yeah. But without a concrete slab. Without a concrete slab. But what I was saying is before we get into the project that Jake and I did, I wanted to give a little history on where... That in a, that innovative idea came from because I have a number of so Jake dragged us back to uh, BC and you're bringing us back to I'm just bringing AD. us back to like you know 1999 year 2000 something like that okay <coughs> so so it started I I was remodeling my house my wife and I had bought a uh, slab above grade. Um, Cape Cod style house north of Boston. So it was every floor in the house was a concrete. You peel up the carpeting or whatever, it was all concrete floor. So it was either tile or um, carpeting in the house, but we wanted to put hardwood floor down. So how do we get from that concrete slab to a hardwood, right? Sure. Everything else goes down easy over the slab. This didn't. Um, and there were still the remnants. It had an in-floor ducted HVAC system Mm -hmm. and it was abandoned at the unit and switched to a baseboard system but all the ducts were still reasons for any number of reasons (laughs) but the ducts were still in place so I peeled back the carpet filled up all the the ductworks with concrete and such but the idea comes is it's not so much in in just like the initial question was the end game was we wanted a hardwood floor. How do we get there? Hmm. Now, we could have just went, nailed down sleepers to the concrete slab floor, put a hardwood floor across the sleepers. Voila, I got a nice hardwood floor in my house. But the problem was a, a couple things. One, the concrete slab in this particular house wasn't flat. It actually was a little higher at the ends. And so how did we level that? And how do we do that? Um, so... A little leveling compound and in talking with Joe, because I was working at Building Science at Joe the Stiebrick. time, Joe Stebrick, and uh, and he said, oh, this is an easy one. You just put down some rigid insulation and we'll put a couple layers of plywood above it. 
And I was like, a couple layers of plywood. He goes, yeah, you just take the plywood and, you know, laminate it, cross over the joints and kind of build like a giant raft in the room. So you're offsetting the uh, seams in the plywood and then right. you're also changing the orientation of the way the sheets the run. changing the orientation of the board. So there's very little transposition. Of- so we took two layers of half inch plywood and made one inch thick plywood. We just site constructed it. Because mm-hmm. we move the joints around and all of that, which one inch by itself that wouldn't work. You just which have pieces of plywood itself, that can piece move of independently. That the joints move now, and I put that over. Um, we put it over two inches of XPS, which I probably wouldn't do if I was doing now. But at the time, XPS Why? seemed crush uh, factor or no. It's just probably not as environmentally friendly as some other. Insulations. You could have used an EPS that was the same density. Yeah. Or a GPS. Or a graphite polystyrene that's even better for the environment. All of those. But it's not not necessarily the worst thing, but it probably isn't the best choice. But anyways, that wasn't the issue. The other issue that I found when we were doing it, I only used two layers of half-inch plywood. So I ended up with some soft spots in the house. Hmm. And, uh, and then thought, okay, how do I solve this? Well, the solution was actually quite easy. I went and got four-inch concrete nails. And whenever I, I just walked back and forth, did like a little sonar review of my floor, when I felt a soft spot, I drove a four-inch concrete nail through the whole system into the slab. Hmm. And so I kind of stiffened it. At, yeah. that, at that little You gave micro. it an anchor point. I gave it an anchor point. Now, I've heard guys, you know, oh, we can use Tapcon screws and this and that. Same stuff. My four-inch concrete nail worked fine with a little four or five-pound sledgehammer. Persuader. Yeah, little persuader. And it went in there. And it's it's been in place for, I don't know, 20-some-odd years now. And it's it's gone perfect. Um, but that set up a system in my mind of... With slab on grade or concrete slab houses, how do we deal with stuff that's happening above it? So, in the assembly you just described, there was a concrete slab insulation in the two layers. So, we have still a slab, but now it's insulated and we, we right. resolve some of those fit. comfort and, you know. Right. I didn't ask the question about the slab because the slab was there. Yeah, it's not like you were exactly. taking it out. And you must have re- total havoc at all doors in terms of. Well, we were doing over. We were doing the downstairs, and we were doing it in two phases. So we were doing the kitchen and dining room kind of space at that time. And when we did the bedrooms, yes, all the bedroom, but they were all non-load bearing doors, mm. no headers, so easy to and change. All that. So yeah, they all moved up an inch and a half or mm. two inches, whatever. No, no, in this case, more like three and a half inches. You know what's kind of interesting about this? Is I've stayed at your house many, many times. Never even. I, I didn't even know the story, nor did I ever notice that. Well, one this of the other interesting happened. things that we did there that too, and I don't want to veer from this too much, but it's it's quite a quite a neat thing. Is Joe had also suggested, hey, you, you know, you're putting in the flooring, you should back poly all the hardwood floor, and I did. So I just I set up a couple horses, a tray. It was really quick. I mean, and I I don't know, it's probably twelve hundred square feet of uh, hardwood flooring. But a little little mini roller, and in you know a couple hours, I had it all back polyed. That floor doesn't move seasonally at all. I don't get any joints. It doesn't open close. Hmm. It is stable as ever. Interesting. Um, but anyways, that 
Yes, that was my first encounter of working with a slab-on grade kind of retrofit that would drive future questions. Yep, and you and I have even built one like that, uh, the the hybrid house where we have uh, basement over part of it or under part of it and then Mm -hmm. slab on grade everywhere else. Clients weren't necessarily keen on getting rid of the slab. They were a little concerned, and then you throw in the basement, it probably makes sense to go ahead and pour the slab. So. What if we want to get rid of that slab? What if we want to build the house without the floor? Yeah, so that drives when you have the ability to have new construction and you go through and and question every assembly. Like I said, sometimes you sit there and say, yeah, we'll just do that like we did the Jones's house or whatever. But occasionally you sit there and say, okay, if it's a, a concrete slab assembly, my end game is a wood floor. Then I have to put in a slab. I'm probably going to put in some sleepers. Then I have to put a subfloor. Then I have to put the the finished hardwood floor on there. That's that's a lot of steps, a lot of layers. And is there a way around it? Is there a way to improve it? And the first question was, do we really need the concrete slab? Mm. What is it doing besides providing some, some type of yep. hard substrate? And I know there's people out there who say, well, you know, if you get good compaction underneath there and, and this and that with the, the slab, the slab's going to make sure, you know, the floor doesn't move. I mean, I think all of us have probably been in buildings where we've seen, you know, slabs subside or crack or or something. heave or yeah. not be flat in the first place. We've like- excavated slabs in basements, like taken them out and found like two foot voids underneath some slabs where the ground just kind of washed away from underneath it. So, you know, the, this whole idea of, oh, you need a slab structurally. No, I don't buy that, that you don't need it structurally to hold the ground up because every if I do everything under the slab correctly, then the slab is just kind of a non-supporting piece of the birthday cake, right? Sometimes we talk about, like in a crawl space, a rat slab, and the idea there is, well, we need something to keep critters out. So that's, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it's like, really, we're going to pour an entire concrete slab just for rodent control or yeah, pest control? And I think that's kind of one of those myths, but it's like we pour the slab there just because we can make it so we can crawl around there and not have to crawl around on dirt or stones or poly or something. And we use the term rat slab loosely that I think it, its birth was in this idea of making sure we don't get animals tunneling into it. But uh but yeah, it's rat slab is a very loose term, but yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. And so if we take away the concrete slab, what do we use to replace it? So if you take away the concrete slab, then we just have to, we, the, the main, the compaction and everything that's happening under there, I think main is the same, right? Because it, why would that change the, the structural effort to support that floor? The, the concrete wasn't really adding to it. So, in other words, we have, uh, hopefully, in uh, undisturbed soil that already is a great compaction, or we have uh, engineered compaction underneath of this. We have some sort of aggregate that we can rake out and that we can level. And in the instance of the one that you and I built, which I think is hashtag Prairie House Arrow on Instagram, if you want to see it, uh, we'll make sure we link to that. Uh, that uh, we then went to lime waste as our top coat the same way that you might do uh, like a paver patio. 
that gave us the ability to rake around, fine adjust, fine tune, and make sure that we were perfectly flat. And then we compacted that and we compacted it two different ways. We used first uh, a large like walk behind industrial compactor with a sheep's foot that really took care of any issues that we had. Uh, and then we used a hand compactor and a little bit of water because that lime waste, you can rake that around really well and make it really quite mm-hmm. hard. And then you can not worry about walking back and forth. Yeah, on the very first one I did, the, the contractor came back and one of his criticisms was, we got to find a way to use something other than just three quarter inch stone to level. He goes, our shoulders are dead trying to rake three-quarter-inch yep. stone to a level platform. Yep. Well, when you think about it, one of the cool things about making a concrete slab is how easy it is to level and I as think part of the process. part of it is that, yeah, it's yeah. this very fluid material. I don't that know. Kind I don't of know if I've ever had one that was no, but I mean, perfectly level. I, I, I totally agree. Not perfectly level. It's level, level on the bottom side. <laughs> yeah. Then they fiddle with it, and it's got high But spots. it's easier than raking three-quarter-inch sure, stone, is. I guess, yeah. is, is the point. And so, we should point out that uh, while we're talking about eliminating the floor, we didn't eliminate any structure around the exterior. We still basically have a footing with a stem wall so that the building sits on that. If we had load-bearing points on the interior of the building, we could have a point load that goes down to a concrete pier that all this sits around. For the instance that you and I built, it was all trust sitting on all exterior walls. There was no interior load-bearing. And before we get any further, I should also say I was back there, and I think I told you this, I was back there a few weeks ago. And that house is what three years old now. Yeah, every and they have absolutely no cracking. There's no paintwork that's even cracking, like on the trim and millwork. There's been no movement in that house whatsoever that's perceivable. Uh, and they're slightly picky. They would point it out if we had issues. You know, the key here is that we're talking about when to use concrete or not, and um, yeah, when do we need to use concrete because of the compressive strength you know, or um, as an environmental separator. But we're going to talk about permanent wood foundations and, you know, in light frame construction, the loads that you're trying to transfer are pretty small. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's there's not. I mean, there, we think about it as being heavy. Like there's, well, that's but because we associate it with us lifting that beam yeah. into place. That right. carries that But the loads are actually is. really low. But in relative to yeah. nature, it's and to commercial buildings. And commercial buildings, yeah. It's like one one column in the middle of a skyscraper is handling more weight than the whole foundation wall right. of this house. Right. I, I I don't remember the exact math, so it's this is gonna be just you know Go hyperbole. If, if I think it's worth looking at, I'll bash it. We built uh in addition to an auto garage a few years ago. And what's an uh, auto garage? A, a, Service bay. Oh, auto a, garage. Okay. Not like auto. It wasn't built for auto. O-T-T-O. Auto garage. Auto garage. And the owner was very concerned about the car lift, what kind of load it was going to mm-hmm. cause and whether or not there was going to be cracking or anything like that. And we ran the math and it came out to something ridiculous, like 60 PSI or something like that. Like the load was spread over four posts. Yeah. The post had a point load of like a yeah, sixteen yeah. by sixteen. Like, and then it was like even with my truck on it, it was still sixty psi. Well, I got twenty like, the EPS that's rated for twenty five <clears throat> psi. It comes out. It's like twelve or thirteen hundred pounds per square foot or something. Yeah, yeah. right. So it's because it's twenty five times one forty four. So I don't. My phone's yeah. off, but but do the math. It's 
Yeah, you sit there and go. We actually did a test at uh, who's the guy? Mark Sevier at Building Science because we wanted to see like if you could crush foam. So in Building Science in the back barn, we had a bunch of different rigid insulations and we stacked like eight high concrete blocks on it. And then we'd go back there and peel them off to see like how much did it indent the indent the foam. So that was one of my very first wing nut. Um, here, here in the back. But the whole point is, these are small loads that we're talking about. Yeah. If we're not, we're not doing this in challenge. Do you want to hear the coolest anecdotal story I have about lifting a car? In high school, as a joke, my friend had a Volkswagen. So, like four of us, we got a bunch of blocks from wood shop. We went out. We lifted his. We literally, like, I don't know, it's probably like five of us lifted his car up. On the back, and then somebody put shim the blocks in, so his tires were literally like, you know, maybe a quarter of an inch above the pavement, so he couldn't see it. So he got in and like started up, hits the puts it in gear, hits the gas, and the tires are spinning, and he's like, "What the hell's going on? Why am I not moving?" Because we had his whole. Are car those things rear-wheel drive? Surely, for mechanical reasons, that's a rear-wheel drive. Yeah, but the engine is back there. Yeah, yeah. so you guys picked up the back half that also the had the engine half, in yeah. it. I hadn't thought about whether or not a Volkswagen. Beat so, it was rear wheel or front wheel drive before. It wasn't that heavy. But anyways. Um, but small There's definitely wheels. a heavy end and a light end. <laughs> yes, there car. is. This is a, becoming a very heavy conversation. Um, that was kind of weak. Um, Agreed. Yeah. Recognition <laughs> is the first step. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, Admitting you have a problem is step two. <laughs> well, I just want to say, I, and one. I can't believe I'm going to glad hand you like this, Steve. But one of the things I love working with you about is... You do. You, you, as an architect, you are constantly saying, why am I doing that? Is it because that's the way it's always been done? Or is there an underlying reason that makes it a constraint? And it's funny because you, you oftentimes turn things into a design problem. Like, tell me what the constraints are and I will design around those constraints. Is, isn't there some ancient proverb or something? I'm, I'm being serious here, but it says like the greatest opportunity lies in the the most difficult hardship or there's something there that sure, hardship we creates opportunity. Like that's or, that's yeah, pretty, pretty well said there's, too. Yeah. There's something there. But, uh, but there's a lot of opportunities when you're trying to understand what that end game is. So we sit there and we sit there and, and go through it and say, well, we want a hardwood floor. And the hardwood floor needs to be supported on some type of sheathing. That sheathing needs to be supported on something. And we need some type of insulation layer to complete our control layer. So where is the slab required? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And is it required? And the answer is, well, as we found out, no, it's not required. And I, and I've been in that house also a couple times after post um, occupancy. The thing that I love about it, I can walk around it and I can feel the floor giving a little bit. And it's that whole, let's get rid of that, yep. that concrete slab discomfort. Which um, is not a bad thing, the fact <coughs> that it oscillates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under pressure, I mean, the, that little give that I'm saying is that's what you want to experience. And Steve, when you design homes that are, that are slabless like this, do you intentionally clear span? From exterior wall to exterior wall, so you don't have to do a, I mean, a footing in the middle for a post. I've done a couple where we just we would have a footing, but then all we do is we take the six by six post or steel lolly column or three and a half inch steel column. It yeah. just goes down to the footing and the whole floor assembly just wraps around it. Yeah. Yeah. Now what's interesting is that takes us to a, a, a kind of a 
uh, a slight turn because I worked on a project and they were, you know, it, people sit there say, well, is there any way to isolate that column from the ground and insulate it? And we did. We found, I can't remember the name, but there is an extremely dense foam. But hmm. it was extraordinarily What are we expensive. chasing at that point? And that's, that takes me to the point of one of my favorite things. Something has to be the worst part of the house, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's the column going all the way to the footing in the middle of the house, I'll live with that. I had a client just last week say to me, really? What, what is the heat loss? If, if, if you have a, I don't know, 40 by 40 square, what is the temperature? But it's not the 40, 40 by square. It's a four inch square. No, but I'm saying if that's in the middle of the building, even in a cold climate, what is the delta T in the middle of winter right underneath that post? I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but. Yeah, it's not probably, what it is outside to inside. The delta T there is probably fifteen degrees, twenty degrees at most. I yeah, I wouldn't be hard to with an infrared camera go and figure that out. Yeah, yeah. So the one thing that we uh, didn't talk about in this assembly is a vapor barrier as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you that we've done this assembly twice: once on top of a slab, once on without a slab. Uh, the time that we did it. On um, the aggregate, the, com- the compressed aggregate, we put down the poly first as our vapor barrier, taped all the seams, taped all our penetrations, then foam. The foam wanted to move around a little bit. Mm. And it was a little bit of a pain. Like, a too much you step on the poly, the, the poly wanted to move a little bit, and then the foam wanted to jiggle around. Once we got it all in, it wasn't horrible or anything. Uh, but the second time, we put the poly on top. Because we had that concrete there and we didn't want concrete and poly and that slickness to happen again. Uh, and then it took about an hour of them starting to install the panel to go, oh, wait, we're punching a ton of holes in this because we're using two-inch screws instead of inch-and-a-half screws. Hmm. Now, we didn't go back and repair any of it. I think that the risk there is super low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure which way I would recommend doing it, but I'm, what I'm bringing up is don't forget the vapor barrier because you are coupling to the ground in some way or another. Did you use a, you know, the builder grade is six mil poly. Did you intentionally use a heavier? No, we use six because, so if it's a, a basement and we're going to pour over top of it and they have to like place rebar and everything, we use something heavier because they're going to be walking all over it. Right. In right. this instance, we knew that we could roll out the poly and then immediately start putting the foam over top of it. And the foam would go way quicker. We weren't dropping things with sharp edges, things like that. And we were like, we can. Is there a perm rating? I don't know. Is there a perm rating difference between 6 mil and 10 mil poly? Well, I'm sure there is because it's always related to thickness. But you're already down at 0.6 perms. Yeah, it's pretty low. It probably already. drops down to 0.4. It's like or the difference between being 20 perms but and 25. But the perforation perms. is what we're worried about. Right? Them no, no, I get that. I get that. I'm just, I just. Well, wondering. and interesting, the perforations from a vapor movement quite different than if we're talking about the penetrations yep. in liquid water. Which brings me back to, so when you do buildings like this, we of course have already looked at site. Groundwater table yeah. that so we assess that. the risk from a yeah. yep. water management perspective. And, and then one more quick question: What about building inspectors? I mean, I can I can. I mean, there's always two problems with building inspectors. What's the code? But then, what do they think the code says? Okay, so it's not in the code. Nowhere in the code does it say that you have to have a, a concrete slab, mm-hmm. which is was the first conversation, and then the one that you and I worked on together, the Prairie House. The next conversation was, okay, 
I need something from the manufacturer saying it's okay that you can do it like this. And I was like, dang, he got us. Now we got to go. Who's the manufacturer? I mean, well, in that case, the EPS has a crush rating printed on it, which is fine. Uh, and then we went to, in this case, we we're using Advantech. Yeah. We went to Huber and said, we need to know that this meets the load calculation. Yeah, the first time I did it with Huber, too, I went to and, and talked to Chris just Vegas. Fantastic on their They're engineers, and they were just super helpful. And, and their first thing was like, we never even thought of doing this or having this problem, but let us check it out. Yeah, but, they want to get what, behind it. Let's sell what it two layers of subfloor. What did you need to get from manufacturer? Compressive strength? Was that the only so thing? So what we needed was, uh, what we got from them was a uh, gluing and screwing schedule. And that if we did it in this de- design parameters, that they would be okay with standing behind it from the L over 360 rating or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it is, it's, it's not only compressive, it's deflection. Yeah. That's uh, really interesting. Which was great because we went to them and all this happened before we started building and we said, okay, we're going to do this. There's going to be tile. I need to know that the load rating is going to be okay. And then we took what they had to say about it to uh, Schluter that makes our waterproofing and our crack prevention membrane and said, are you guys okay with this? Are we voiding the warranty? And they said, no, you're good. And that house has a bunch of tile. It does. It has tile entryway. It has a tile kitchen. It has two tile bathrooms, a tile shower, a recess. And there's zero. No problems whatsoever. And you've got the concrete perimeter. Yep. So in terms of wood, eight inches separated from finished grade, you don't have any wood that's out yeah. at the at the perimeter. Yep. And Very it's fully insulated because we use four inches of EPS yeah. foam there, which I like because when, when you talk about continuity, which is one of our favorite words, I mean, this is everything inside the exterior wall, foam on the floor. You know what we need to do? We need to go and do... I often wonder what I need to do. I'm glad you're around <laughs> to tell me. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I believe it. Um, we need to do some infrared camera work and do side by side comparisons oh, with the Delta T. Yeah, that would, man, that's wicked cool. I think he's being facetious. Man, you cut me to that's the quick, brother. He got he got all excited <laughs> that you were in agreement with him, and then realized what was happening. <laughs> you could see it wash over his face. Keep reeling him in. Come on, baby, let's get you close to the shores. <laughs> You should be you should be ashamed of yourself. You, Listen, you know you just back. Pretty much everybody I've met in my life has told me that. <laughs> you should reconsider existence. I'm I'm going to go Listen. talk to Steve Williams about infrared images. All I'm going to tell you is you're I'll get the appropriate reaction. Yeah. So the point of this is there can be a different way. Think about there can it. be a different way, and I think and it the, might not work. And I think the true point of this is not necessarily the fact that we were able to build this house without a slab. It's it's how, as builders, architects, building scientists, and the like in our industry, how do we move our industry forward, and what kind of questions should we be asking, and how should we be asking them, and what should we be thinking about? Which, right? if that's not clear, is it's not necessarily that this is a solution for you for some sort of problem. It's Think about your problems. Think about it. Think Don't about just go everything as a today. potential. And it's it's sad because probably the the majority of our houses built don't have the opportunity to migrate. Right. Mm-hmm. When you think about, I don't know, one point three million building permits a year. I think it is something like that. 
in a strong year, yeah, in sure. a strong yeah. year, right? What percentage of those are um, like production style homes versus mm-hmm. a custom home that has the ability to migrate? You know, they have their system set up. Okay, go and just. I mean, when I was with you know artistic homes, we we had we were in, in the heyday. We were framing twenty houses a week. You wonder just, though, just Steve, crazy. that you, you're describing this as perhaps a system change for custom builders. Production builders should certainly be looking at the differences between yeah because slab if that, and slab if, if that changes the if that moves the needle a thousand dollars times twenty thousand homes I build this year that's a big change yep. in in that bottom line or to, or even just timeline even if it costs the same which we should real quick talk about cost well I think cost but the other thing that comes to mind is you know we we talk about it not being as hard and not having any problems. In some ways, I would argue that this system makes for a better warranted or better hmm. warranty on the system, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like, I've with, had no callbacks with Joe. I remember we went out to, uh, Lincoln. I, I think it was Lincoln Homes and somewhere out by Prairie Crossing. And he went out there. They were having all kinds of drywall cracks. And the answer was, Joe said, well, you're attaching your drywall far too much to the wood frame. And, and it, when I first heard that from Joe, I was like, of course we're attaching it. The more you attach, the more control you have. Right. Which is exactly that's what people think. Yeah. Oh, well, you don't want that to crack. I'll just put in more screws. more screws. <laughs> but the reality is, is that you want to take 50 screws out of that yeah. assembly yeah. because you want it to be the, the most flexible it can possibly right. be. It's cracking because you're restricting movement. Yep. And, 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 you know, the key to this is, that's the engineer in Joe saying that you think you need to stop the movement when what you should be saying is, how do I let it move? You know, the opposite it's question. It's asking the right question. Yeah. And I think that's what the Unbuild It podcast is all about. So just real quickly, in all these homes, you there there are people that run ducting and plumbing. I've never heard any wiring in slabs. But you're... For this approach, you're not putting anything in this slab. You know what the beauty of this yes. th- this system is too. I can't wait to see the beauty of this, right? And because it's this is system. well, this is a, this is a huge problem with slab on great houses. You get to wall framing, and the plumber comes over and says that wet wall is over two inches from where my pipe is. Mm. So, do we move the wall and all the framing, or right. do we move the pipe? Well, if we move the pipe. We got to hammer out the slab. He's yep. got, and yet you can't hammer it out to where you're moving it. You have to hammer it out to deconstruct what's there. Yeah, yeah. To slide it over. What do we do at a house that's just foam? You carve out the foam. You move the stone a little bit. You extend the pipe. You put a little more stone back, and then you just yeah. spray it with yeah. expanding foam. So another advantage is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not changeability. Um, adaptability maybe adaptability of something along those lines um, but that ability in, in wiring the other <coughs> one that always comes up in that we have major problems if you're trying to hit a wall at a kitchen island mm. right oh yeah so yeah. you get there in this system here you can just route cut a, a channel yeah I was going to say router yep. router mm. it out drop the wire in underneath the so flooring we had floor plugs and the island plugs at that house and obviously we had some wires that ran to interior walls that wouldn't be easy to get to from above and things like that what we did was uh the few of them when they dropped two slab we took the circular saw set it at a 45 cut a v 
and then we laid metal conduit in so that whatever we screwed in mm. was unlikely to ever hurt that. I, I would never have thought about that, but boy, that's a huge advantage. Yeah, you can yeah. go in, and some and of all these the things are just below in the aggregate, just like it would be in a slab. None sure. of it's caught in our assembly; it's just below it. And yeah. we'd like to think we're going to plan and catch everything, but yeah. you still get yeah. the client yeah. that says, "Hey, I never thought about it, but can we put some outlets in the floor in this room?" Right. Right. Yeah, we can now. So cost-wise, on the first one we did together, we were slightly more expensive, I think, than doing concrete. I think having learned from it some now, we probably would be a wash or cheaper. Uh, so I think it's definitely something that we would consider again. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want more information on that house in particular, uh, Pro Tradecraft did a like 10 part video series. Yeah, they actually won an award for those yeah. uh, videos and stuff on that. For educational content, so, for Dan, instructional. Dan did a beautiful job on Yes, that. he did. Shout Kudos out to, to Dan, Dan Morrison. Yeah. Uh, so you can find that on Pro Tradecraft. And I think, yeah, uh, Reisinger did a tour with us yep. of the house, but it's yeah. post construction. So you can just see what the house is like. And Dan, just a quick plug for Dan, Dan Morrison, who was the co-creator of Green Building Advisor before he ended up at uh, Pro Tradecraft. Dan's just a great guy. I mean, we'll give him we'll give him his two minutes of fame. Yeah. On the end of the Can podcast. we take a weird stance on it and see whether or not he listens? <laughs> <laughs> he will now. Yeah, he will. Somebody he will, will tell him. I'll, I'll go tell him. Give it a listen. But but even even I don't care if he listens. Dan Dan does a good job for the building yeah. industry. He is he is certainly an asset to the industry. And passionate about yeah. the industry as well. So kudos to Dan. Okay. Thank you for watching. If you're watching this on YouTube, thanks for listening on whatever device you use to listen to the podcast. We enjoy making this. We're thankful that you're here. We love your feedback, either through uh, the Unveiled It podcast. I don't understand on- if I'm really happy to be here. Okay. Um, we'll let, yeah. we'll <laughs> let him ponder that. Uh, we like your feedback either through the Unveiled It podcast on Instagram or by all means, leave us a five-star review on Instagram or on uh, uh, iTunes and leave a comment. Click the subscribe button on YouTube. The more people watch, the more of these that we uh, have the ability to make. So I'm going to end it with a Pete joke. Pete, this is a joke to Pete. How do you make a hot dog roll? Uh, put it on a hill. <laughs> wow. Till next time. And if you're trying to communicate with me, the best way is to just send me a letter in the mailbox. (laughs) Pony Express. Thank you, guys. Have a good day.